Good morning, everybody. Fourth and fifth graders, you are dismissed to your class. For the rest of us, we are going to begin a brand new series entitled The Rabbi, and in it, I, I do want for there to be several moments, of, I'm hoping, my prayer is, is for us to have a better understanding of Jesus and how he would have even been viewed in the first century in his context and in his culture. So I've got some history things behind a lot of this message, and also just kind of my prayers are there just moments where passages that you've read a lot go, oh, that's why. Those sort of moments is what I'm praying for. But as we begin, I need you to use your imagination to really understand Matthew. I need you for just a moment to picture in your mind, to imagine, if you will, what it's like to be disliked by just about everyone around you. Now, this will be easier for some of you than others, but imagine for a moment that nobody around you really cares for you. Picture in your mind what life would have been like wherever you, everywhere you go, people know who you are. It's not like they don't know. They know who you are, and because of what you did for a living, not many people like you. Now, it isn't so much that you're morally reprehensible, although that probably is a part of the equation, but you're kind of viewed in some way as even a traitor to your own people. Now, this might be the feeling maybe someone who's committed a crime that became very public. It got on the evening news. Their face was plastered all over the place. And so everywhere they went in the community, people knew who they were. I mean, even if you didn't know them, when you saw their face, you went, oh, that's that guy who did this. And so you immediately have an opinion or assessment about them. And in society, you were ostracized or you were looked down upon that people wouldn't let their kids play with your kids. They would at best ignore you if they saw you in public spaces, or at worst, they'd make little comments under their breath to make you feel small. If you ever try to volunteer for something, like in a school setting, they would let you know, no, thank you, we don't need your help in this situation. And so in the end, because nobody really cares for you, you end up hanging out with the only group of people who seem to accept you, which are the other morally bankrupt, socially misfit, ostracized untouchables of society. And so you hung out with those kind of people. In fact, those kind of people had a name. The holy people would call them harmatolos, which meant the sinners, the harmatolos. And that's the only people you could hang out with. Now, you add then to be, well, if everyone thinks about you like this because of your job, why don't you just switch jobs? Here's what you need to know about the first century, especially in the area of Palestine. You didn't get to just pick your career. You did what the family did by way of trade, and that just got passed on from generation to generation. And if something went wrong and that didn't work out because of scandal or economy, it wasn't like you just applied at a new job and could get a new profession or a new career. Sometimes you ended up having to take the job that nobody else wanted to take because of the ramifications by way of society in doing so. And yet you've got a family, you need to take care of them, and so you end up kind of being that in society. Even though you can now provide for your family, you're now viewed as the scum of society. So after a while, you begin to play that part. I mean, why not? If everyone already thinks of me like this and treats me like this, then screw them. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what's best for me. And so the next thing you know, you start cheating a little bit or swindling or stealing. You begin to take advantage of other people, manipulating their circumstances because, after all, you don't care about them because they don't seem to care about you and how they think about you. And then this is your setting. Picture this is your life, day after day after day. It doesn't seem like there's any hope. This is just the way it is. This is sort of the, the lot that's been handed to me. And then one day, perhaps the most famous rabbi, and I mean really famous, like stories about this rabbi, they're circulating everywhere. 
that one day he walks by your office, which happens to be a tax collector's booth, and he looks right at you and says, I want you to follow me. A holy man, like a teacher of Torah, a, at least by reputation, a miracle worker, a righteous man, he looks right at you, the scum of the earth, and says, I want you to follow me. Now, imagine, if you would, the shock and surprise. You would imagine that he would be th- Jesus saying, yes, you. I'm talking to you. I want you to follow me. I want you to be one of my disciples. I'm going to give you a new life. In fact, here's what I'd like. I'd like you to invite all of your friends together, and let's have dinner at, at your house. <laughs> to which, my friends. Yes, your friends. You mean the kind of people I hang out with that are nothing like you. Yes, they're the ones. We're going to eat dinner together. All the sinners and outcasts. Invite them all. And from that moment, your entire life changes. This rabbi proves to give new life and new purpose and new hope and a second chance and even acceptance when you clearly don't deserve it. And after three years of hanging out with this rabbi and following as a disciple of this rabbi, you have become absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that based on everything that you've seen, everything that you've heard, that this isn't just some rabbi, this is the Messiah. This is the son of the living God. And he picked you, a dirty, filthy, looked down upon, traitor of the Jewish people, a Roman tax collector. And if you can imagine that, then you can imagine what it's like to be Matthew. Because when Matthew writes his gospel, this is the story which he finds himself in. Nobody likes Matthew. And one day Jesus says, I'm choosing you to come follow after me. And after encountering Jesus and seeing everything that he saw, he now has one goal and ambition, and that's to convince all of his friends, whichever ones he has left, and all of his family, and even his fellow Jews, that this Rabboni Yeshua, which is how he would have been referred to, Rabbi, Jesus is his English name, Yeshua is his Hebrew, Rabboni Yeshua was the, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the son of the everlasting God. And so Matthew will sit down with pen in hand and parchment, and he will tell his story, and he will write it out, what he knows, what he saw, what he experienced it, and he tells it using his own words from his own culture and his own understandings. Think about Matthew sort of like a witness in court who's testifying to all the things that would point to this Jesus. Is He's trying to convince a Jewish jury He'll even use Old Testament prophets if he needs to as points of evidence to show that this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph, the one that Pilate crucified on the cross, the one that God brought back from the dead, is the Messiah. And so 2,000 years later for us today in 2013 at the Living Stones Church, when we pick up our Bibles, you might not, there's two major parts of the Bible. You've got an Old Testament and a New Testament. The very first book of the New Testament is called a gospel, which means good news is the gospel of Matthew. That what you hold in your hands and when you begin reading is the story of this man who nobody likes, who one day encountered Jesus and it changed everything, and he leaves absolutely convinced that this rabbi isn't some ordinary rabbi. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the story of the rabbi. Now let me give you a little bit of historical background if I could, because I think our story, I mean, Sometimes we tend to get all ethereal with our Bible, and it really does come from real time and a real place. It has a real culture with real language, and all of that matters. And I want for us in this 
in the series for Jesus to come alive in such a way where he's not just some abstract, ethereal concept, but rather, no, he's a real man that lived at a real point of time with a real family and a real culture and a real perspective. And here's what you need to know. When Jesus began his public ministry, he was viewed as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher of the law. In fact, very few ever got to really see him as the son of God. Most people viewed him as just another teacher, another rabbi. Right? Only the demons recognized, oh my goodness, this is the son of God. What do you want with us? Everybody else saw, here's a man who seems to be a rabbi, a teacher of the law. And what rabbis did is they often found themselves in synagogues. In fact, what's interesting is even in our day and age, like, like even on the south side of South Bend, you know, we've got a very large Jewish community that's all around us. In fact, uh, the back of our parking lot here, the fence line, if you just jump over the fence line, you know where you're at? You're at a synagogue. And a rabbinic school, a school that's training Jewish men to be rabbis. And so right, right behind our church buildings. And so Jesus would be viewed as a rabbi, a teacher of the law. And the synagogue life in the first century was very critical to the Jewish community. And Jesus' ministry, we know, was in the area of Galilee. And archaeologists have discovered the remains of a synagogue found in what's called a city of Gamla in the area of the Sea of Galilee. It, the history behind it, and, and I, there's a... Yeah, there's the picture of the ruins. This used to be a synagogue. A group of Jews that were coming back from the exile in about 150 B.C. founded the city of Gamla. And so it's got a large, steep mountain, and homes were built on top of one another. So what happens is the roof of one house would be the front yard of the other house. That's how they kind of stacked it together, and they built a synagogue. It's one of the oldest discovered in Israel, and the synagogue, like most synagogues, become the community center, the courthouse, the school, and the common gathering place. It would go on to become a religious center, providing a place to pray and study, and it's most likely that Gamla's synagogue was one of the synagogues that Jesus actually taught in, which I don't know why that's so fascinating to me, but I love to see those ruins and think, oh my goodness, this is like Jesus actually was there. Like in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So that's, you see, Jesus' ministry is in the synagogues. Now, another fact that you need to know, here's another background, hang with me for a little bit here, background in terms of Jesus' day and age when he taught as a rabbi, it was very diverse by way of thought. Like, there are lots of people. It's sort of like today where you have different political philosophies and different parties. That's the way it was for the Jewish community in the first century. There was lots of different thought. And it was, in fact, one, it was where Jesus was, was performing his ministry was the hotbed of political rebellion for a political movement known as the Zealots. I don't know if you ever heard of the, the Zealots. But just like we have different political philosophies today in our democracy, we've got liberals and we've got conservatives, we've got Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Green Parties. The Jews had a lot of their own different political movements, and they were always posting their political philosophies on their Facebook wall, and they were having friends defriend them, and that, that was happening all the time back then. It annoyed their friends. But the Zealots were a group of fiery independent Jews who sought to overthrow Rome. Like, if you were a zealot, you hated anything that was Roman. You didn't want to speak their language. You didn't have anything to do with their culture. You were Jewish. And you know who the dominating force was in the day? It was the Romans and Caesar. And you longed for the day when you were free from Rome's rule. Like, that's what you desired. And you would even resort to terrorism and violence if necessary. And so what you see is Jesus in the midst of this diversity, in this hotbed, he, I mean, even his own disciples, look at this, in his own group 12 that gets together his apostles, Matthew chapter 10, verse Verses 2 and 4 says this. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, there was Simon, who's called Peter, 
and his brother Andrew, and James, who was the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, who's the gospel we're reading, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And then it's also Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So in the same group of men, Jesus has Simon, who is a zealot, and he's got Matthew, who's a Roman tax collector. Could you imagine how much they did not like one another? I mean, mean, you're talking about friction from the very beginning, and yet around Jesus, he's able to do something with them. Zealots are very much like modern-day Palestinians who believe it's their moral responsibility to overthrow the government, even using violence and terrorism as methods to reach their goal. And they look forward. Here was the zealots' belief that someday the Messiah is going to show up, and when he does, the Jews will finally be free from Rome. We will finally have our independence. We'll finally have military power and freedom. You know what their war cry was? Hosanna. Hosanna was the big war cry of the zealots. You know what their physical symbol was? Kind of like the donkey or the, or the uh, elephant for our political. You know what their political party symbol is? The palm branch. So Hosanna was their battle cry, and the palm branch was their political symbol. Do you remember when Jesus enters into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry before he's crucified? Remember that scene, what happens? This is what it says in Matthew 21, verses 8 11. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed the shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered the Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. See, this was a zealot movement. See, when Jesus enters in Jerusalem, the zealots think, This is it. He's finally going into Jerusalem and he's going to overthrow the Romans and we're about to over, we're going to we're going to start war right here and now. This is their perspective. They picture Jesus with an earthly movement of finally let's be done with the Romans and and start a war. And the side note is we get this in the Gospel of Luke, but when Jesus sees this scene, he weeps and he says this in Luke 19 verse 42. If you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days are going to come when, you will, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They're going to dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, which happens in 66 AD. So this is the setting in Jesus' ministry. I mean, it's very diverse. And yet the synagogue would be the place where Jesus would most likely perform his, his teachings and in the synagogue, their church services kind of look like this. You would give blessings to God, and you would sing praises to God. You would recite the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the great Shema. Every time Jesus entered the synagogue, you would have a moment where they would say this, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad, which means the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then someone would read from the scriptures and then give a short sermon afterwards. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, we have the story where Jesus goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah about, it's a, it's a messianic text where when the Messiah comes, it's going to look like this. And then Jesus closes up the scroll and he says, the shortest sermon ever, he says, he says today the scripture is fulfilled in your midst. To which everybody listening is thinking, say, what? Are, are you claiming to, What? And this is Jesus' ministry. As a rabbi, Jesus' message 
would be present among a lot of other competing ideas. So you've got Jesus on one hand as a rabbi teaching, but his message would be greatly different than the Zealots, and it would be different than the Essenes, who were another Jewish movement. It would be different with those secular Jews who wanted to cooperate with Rome. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. And the Pharisees, who wanted to have strict adherence to the law, when they listened to Jesus' message, they didn't know what to do with it. And then on top of that, even the pagans who were all around them, who didn't quite buy into this one God concept, We're miles away watching what the Jews would have considered pornographic plays. And it's in this context that Jesus begins his ministry as a rabbi. He enters into a Jewish culture that had this rabbi versus that rabbi, and this school of thought versus that school of thought, and they would what they would call bind and loose their various interpretations and aspects of interpretation on the law of Moses. And you see that language in Matthew 18, right? The binding and loosing, that's a very common phrase for the rabbis of their day to bind and loose their interpretations of the law of Moses. And so one rabbi would come along and say, hey, listen, if your donkey needs help on the Sabbath, then the needs of your donkey take precedence over the rules regarding doing no work. And yet right behind him would be another rabbi that would say, oh, no, nothing is more important than the Sabbath, not even your donkey. And so you can't help your donkey in that well until after the Sabbath. And these various doctrinal packages from the various schools of thought and rabbis, you know what they called them? They called them yokes. That's what they call these various doctrinal packages that each rabbi would teach. They called them in the end Yokes. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and, tired and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is contrasting himself with other rabbis. See, all those other rabbis, they've got to jump through hoops to please God in this way, and you've got to do like this, do it like that. And Jesus comes along and says, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. For those of you who are exhausted trying to run the spiritual treadmill and get somewhere, take my yoke upon you, and you'll find rest. Now, most rabbis are average, run-of-the-mill rabbis. They're all over the place. But these average run-of-the-mill rabbis could only teach what other rabbis with real authority had already decided. They were not allowed to give new meaning to texts and teach it like that. They were limited to teaching what was considered orthodox within their community. But there were, every once in a while, a few rabbis who were considered to have real authority. They were very rare, and they didn't come along very often, but they were not looked upon as average run-of-the-mill rabbis. In fact, the Jews had a special word for them. They called them the smicha rabbis. Now, we're going to say this together because you're going to hear this word a lot. Smicha. you got to say like you like have something in your throat, you got to spit up. I want you to spit on the person in front of you and say, smicha. Ready to say it together. Smicha. Right? Smicha rabbis were not ordinary run-of-the-mill rabbis. Smicha rabbis, and what this word means is authority. Smicha rabbis were known to have the entire Old Testament committed to memory. Can you imagine? The entire Old Testament that was completely memorized. They were considered master storytellers who could weave stories into their interpretations and texts. And what Matthew wants us to know is that the man that he followed, Rabboni Yeshua, the man that you follow, Jesus, was not some run-of-the-mill average rabbi. He was a rabbi with smicha, with real authority. 
And so, so much so that what Matthew tells us is, remember that Sermon on the Mount that Jesus teaches, right? It's in Matthew 5 and 7. After Jesus has done the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says this. This is what the crowds say in verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had smicha, authority, and not like all the other teachers of the law, not like the other rabbis. Jesus, when he taught, it was, and it wasn't like just fine speech. No, I mean, it was like, He had something in him that gave him real authority, that Matthew wants us to know that the man we follow, Jesus of Nazareth, is a smicha rabbi. And so when you watch Jesus, this is what he does. He interprets the scriptures. He gives it new meaning. And he'll do this often in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he'll say things like this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with, do you see what Jesus just did there? See, he's exercising his smicha, his authority. I know that you've heard that this is what has been taught by all the other rabbis, but I say to you this. And he does it over and over again, Matthew 5, verse 27, 28. I know that you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or he'll say in verse 31, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you, who does he think that he is to be able to say, I know this is what we've been teaching, but I'm saying to you, it's his smicha. It's his authority. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, verse 33, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne. He'll say in verse 38, 39, I know you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because that's what all the rabbis said, right? Well, did they take your eye? Yeah, take theirs too. They knock out your tooth, knock their tooth. I mean, that's what all the rabbis taught. And Jesus comes along and practicing his authority, he says, oh, no. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. All the other rabbis, they're walking around, verse 43, saying, yeah, we're going to love our neighbor, but we're going to hate our enemies. And Jesus comes along and says, oh, no, not if you're following me, not if you're wearing my yoke. For those who are followers of me, we're going to love our enemies and pray for people who persecute us. Say, what? See, this is Rabboni Yeshua has smichach, real authority. And just as a side note, we need to take this seriously. Like, my concern, especially the American churches, we don't take any of this seriously. Like, our rabbi has very specific teachings and specific interpretations of the law that he expects those who are following after him to take seriously and apply it to our lives. So if we have an anger issue, Jesus talks about that. Like if we've got a lust issue, Jesus gives us instruction. If we have a marriage issue or we're lying and swearing, he has, he has us deal with that. If, if we're always seeking revenge and retaliation on those who injure us or who we consider to be our enemies, we've got a very clear path from our rabbi on how we're supposed to respond, which I think includes not killing them but he's the one that speaks with smicha. And it's amazing to me how many Christians kind of read Rabbi Jesus and immediately dismiss it as, well, that's not really applicable. (laughs) I mean, it's just not practical. I mean, you can't really expect me to turn the other cheek if someone slaps me, right? I mean, come on. Well, it isn't very realistic, you know. I mean, really, we're going to love our enemies? What's that going to look like? Come on. Or that's not very pragmatic. I mean, everyone lies just a little. I mean, 
exaggerates just slightly on their taxes or are turning in the construction bid. And if you don't, you're not going to be competitive and you're going to end up losing. And so, come on, Jesus. I mean, really? But I would say to us that Jesus' tallest order for us, calling for us, is not to be practical or realistic or pragmatic, but to be faithful. And that to trust in him that when we live out his teachings in our life, it will actually lead to abundant life, even if we can't see it at the moment. And so I'd ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus or not? Are you a Christian or not? And what do we even think that means if it's not taking the teachings of our rabbi and living them out in our own life as his disciples? And it's amazing what I think Americans have done to dumb down this whole Christian thing to the point where non-Christians take a look at our lives and think, You're, it's no different than my life. I don't see how you following Jesus makes any different than me not following Jesus. We look the exact same. This is where you could have a very important historical figure, Mahatma Gandhi, say that, maybe you've heard this famous quote, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. They look so unlike your Christ. Now, some of us might feel defensive in that. The other part might go, no, I, we, I would get that. See, what Gandhi, see, Gandhi's experience with Christianity in the British Empire, both South Africa and in England and in India, let him know that you guys don't look anything like Jesus. <laughs> I mean, in fact, Gandhi was most influenced by Jesus himself in his nonviolent philosophy of politics, which, by the way, did in the end free them from British oppression. So in terms of practical, realistic, or pragmatic, it does work, but he got it from Rabboni Yeshua, our Jesus. And, of course, Jesus got in trouble all the time, didn't he? I mean, the other teachers of the law wanted to know, who do you think you are to teach with this sort of authority? Like, they were always coming to him questioning his authority or wanting some sign. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, they all come to him, well, we want to see a sign from heaven to prove that you actually have this smicha authority. And Jesus is brilliant. He always, in good Jewish fashion, he always turns it around and asks them a question. Well, where do you get this authority? Well, let me ask you a question. Let's talk about John the Baptist. Where did his authority come from? We don't know. I don't know either. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus, I mean, that's what kind of he moved in that. But here's what Jesus, as rabbi, he reveals the heart and intent of God. And if I could do this with you, I don't do this very often, but can I assign you homework for this week? Can I do that? Here's the homework assignment. Go home and read the Sermon on the Mount. It's just three chapters. It's Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Just three. You've got seven days to read three chapters, and I know you can do it, but I think it will help you. Because Jesus has a lot of things to say in the Gospels, but perhaps the most concentrated collection of his teachings and authoritative commentary, even all in the Old Testament, is found in these three chapters. And if I had to pick a part of the New Testament that's as close to being our constitution of the church or Christians as I could find, I would point you to Matthew 5 to 7. And I would tell you it is the most challenging by way of living it out than any portion of his teachings that I can find. I mean, it's real life. He talks about anger and lust and struggles in marriage, and the struggle to tell the truth and be honest, or the temptation to want to knock somebody's head off that's bullying you or giving you a hard time. It deals with religious practices like giving and praying and fasting. It talks about how you should view money. It deals with the problem of worrying. I mean, am I talking to anybody here? I mean, Jesus deals with this in just three chapters of time. It gives us instruction and warning on judging other people. And about seeking after God and how to discern between a real faith and a false faith and how to construct our spiritual house. It's real. So this week, read Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 7. And as you do, let me give you two filters. Let me two things here. Number one, know this. Jesus is trying to reclaim God's heart and intent because it got hijacked by all the religious teachers of his day. Like Jesus will do this often. I know this is what you say and what you do, but you forget that what God originally intended from the beginning was this. 
that what Jesus does is he's trying to rescue God's heart. And what he meant in the Old Testament when he said this, because it got hijacked and turned around into some legalistic, oppressive religion. And Jesus is always coming, this is why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the teachers of the law, they had all sorts of rules. Well, you better do this, and you got to behave like this, and you got to look like this. And it was all about the externals. It was a religion based on externals. And we do the same thing today. I'm telling you, very religious people and non-religious people, we, it's easy to do the externals, right? Because that you can measure, that you could see. And so we gravitate, even if it's slowly, towards external appearances. And so even for people who aren't really religious, but they still want to hang on to enough of their Jesus that they got kind of growing up, and, well, I mean, I attended church, so, you know, I'm good. Externally, it's all good. Or I've got a Bible on my coffee table that I open up a couple times a year. We're all good. Or I wear a cross around my neck, so I'm cool. Or I've got a scripture tattooed on my lower back here, so, you know, I'm all good. And then it goes to the other extreme of people who want to be very super religious. Well, I mean, I never miss a church service. I mean, I'm there when the doors are open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. There's a Bible study, I'm there. I read my Bible every day. I've got an hour-long prayer time every day. I have got the correct doctrinal interpretation of the end times. I can speak in tongues. I don't cuss, smoke, or chew, and I won't date any girls who do. Right? That's kind of that external. (laughs) It's an external righteousness that Jesus puts his finger on and says, that's not where righteousness comes from. Righteousness comes from the heart. You could have all the externals right, but if it's not coming from the heart, then it doesn't matter. See, what Jesus knows is the externals don't matter. What matters is the heart. And when the heart is righteous, then it will affect the external. You'll get the externals right, but it's a righteousness that moves from the inside out. And that's why he'll say things on the Sermon on the Mount like this. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But Jesus knows you can't get to murder until you pass through the heart of anger. So what does Jesus do? He puts his finger on the heart issue and says, deal with anger. So you can't get to murder without anger. He'll say, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but Jesus knows adultery is a heart issue of lust. So he puts his finger on the heart and says, deal with lust in your heart and you'll never get to adultery. You see what Jesus does? It's a heart issue that he's aware of. And so what he does in the sermon, he tries to rescue the heart and intent of God back to God. And if you're following after him as your rabbi, it's, no, no, let me give you the real interpretation of God's law. But the second thing I need you to notice in the Sermon on the Mount is that he's also trying to dismantle how the world really works, the present order, and to say, I'm going to give you a new way. And the world won't recognize it. In fact, it will be offended by it, and it will look crazy. But this is how the world works, but it won't be for you who are following me. We've got a new order. See, the world will live by an eye for an eye and hate your enemies. That's the order of the the world. You bomb me, I'll bomb you. Jesus' solution is this. We're going to give the world what they've never seen before. Sacrificial love and suffering. Sacrificial love and suffering. In fact, Jesus himself will demonstrate this fully on the cross, right? What's he, he has every right to retaliate if he wants to, but he goes to the full extent to show it is only love that will conquer the world. See, the world's already seen this, and it hasn't changed anything in millennium. What the world has not seen is a group of people who will follow after me who will live by a new order. The world is so caught up in the material things like food and clothes, but not with you. 
The world will greet those that greet them, and they'll love those that love them, but not with you. We're going to show the world a new order. We're going to love those who are our enemies. That will be what brings revolution to the earth. And this is what will demonstrate the heart and will of God. This is the message of our smicha rabbi, Yeshua. What's interesting is Jesus will go on in his ministry to give his disciples his authority. And I want you to know, because when you walk out of here, I want you to know, you walk out of here with Jesus' authority. Because you have his name on you, and because his spirit dwells within you, you walk out of here with smicha, with his authority. And so things like this, Matthew 10.1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them smicha, authority, to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus will point to our authority in Matthew 18, 18 and 20 and say this, listen, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. See, this is that language of the rabbis. You have this. If just two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'm there with you. And you could ask for anything in my name, and my Father will give it to you. This is why he'll say at the very end of his gospel, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, and Jesus says, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth, it's been given to me. So I'm giving it to you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to teach them everything that I've commanded you. And I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. See, when you wake up in the morning and go to work, go to work with the smicha of Jesus, who is your rabbi, to show those around you a new order and the heart and intent of God. Our rabbi, this is what Matthew wants us to know. If you're following after Jesus, you're not just following after some run-of-the-mill average rabbi. You're following the rabbi. I mean, this cat had so much authority, even creation itself listened to him. Remember that story that Matthew will tell us in chapter 8 where there's a storm and the disciples are in the boat and they're all freaking out and, oh, we're going to die. Jesus stands up in the boat and just looks over the boat, looks at the wind and waves and says, shut up. Now, that's my paraphrase, but that's what he says. You know what the wind and waves do? They shut up. And it says in verse 27 of chapter 8, the men were amazed and they asked, what kind of man is this? I mean, even the wind and the waves obey. I mean, no other rabbi, no other rabbi can do that. For Matthew says, that is our rabbi. And you need to know, he is the smartest individual who has ever walked the face of the earth. And this is important. Because if I were to ask you, well, who do you think the smartest man is to ever live on the face of the earth? Then you should follow that man because he's the smartest. Or if I were to ask you, Who's the most powerful man who's ever lived on the face of the earth? You should follow that man because he's the most powerful. What I would suggest to you this morning is there's no one who's ever lived on the face of the earth who is as smart and as powerful as our rabbi, Yeshua. Nobody. And sometimes we think, you know, he kind of, Jesus is all voodoo, mystical, you know, all. I mean, no, no, I'm telling you, it's because he was brilliant. He was smart. And it was Dallas Willard who wrote a book called uh, Divine Conspiracy, which is an excellent book. He says this in the book. He says, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water and make it into wine. That knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. He he could create matter from the energy that he knew how to access from the heavens right where he was. And he knew how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity to interrupt weather patterns to eliminate unfruitful trees without a saw or an axe just by uttering a word. Surely he must be amused at what noble prizes are awarded for today. In the ethical domain, he had an understanding of life that has influenced the world thought thought more than any other. 
death was not something imposed on him by others. He explained it to his followers that I could at any moment call 72,000 angels if I want. But he plainly said, nobody takes my life. I'm going to lay it down by choice. All things show Jesus' cognitive and practical mastery of every phase of reality, physical, moral, and spiritual, saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate in saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice. He's brilliant. He's the smartest man and the most powerful man who's ever lived. And that's our rabbi. That's who we're following. And that's why... This matters. And so when we end this morning, what, what does Matthew want us to know? What he first wants us to know is that man that looked at him one day and said, you follow me, after spending three years with him, I've got this to say. He's not some average run-of-the-mill rabbi. He is a rabbi with smicha. And like none other ever in the history of the world, that's why you should follow him. And that's why we should follow him. This Jesus is Messiah. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, would you open up our eyes to see Jesus clearly? We don't want to miss anything as to who he is. We want to see him with the full weight and capacity that we're able to bear to recognize that your son, that Jesus of Nazareth, is not just for us some teacher, but he is the teacher. We want to commit our lives to him and to the things that he's taught us to do. And through that, the trust that will lead us to not only abundant life, but it will change the face of the earth. And so we ask for that, God. We are grateful for your grace that even where we have been, even at times in lowly places, Jesus looked at each of us and said, I'm going to pick you to follow after me. And so we follow after Rabboni Yeshua, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.